We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. When we experience a difficult time, we may believe that finding joy is too hard, too much to hope for, and only for those who are resilient enough. According to today's guest, Dr. Thamit Sethi, joy is an innate human right accessible to all. She joins us to help us rediscover joy, not as a destination or solution, but as a practice for healing. Dr. Sethi is a board-certified integrative family medicine physician and clinical associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She has spent the past 25 years working on the front lines of the most marginalized communities, as well as globally with victims of school shootings, survivors of hurricanes, and citizens impacted by police violence. Dr. Sethi is the author of the book, Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. Welcome, Dr. Sethi. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, I'm really excited to be here. Doctor, in your book, Joy is My Justice, you discuss how we can shift our nervous system and biochemistry into joy at the cellular level. But before we talk about that, let's look at joy and happiness, which are usually used interchangeably. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Yes. I mean, I think there's a big difference. There's some overlap in that both are pleasant and both are really desirable. I would love to have both as much as possible. But happiness is a binary construct. It's a cognitive evaluation. You're either happy or you're something else. And it's attached to an outcome. It isn't bad, but that's just how it works. And joy, in contrast, is a deeply embodied experience. It comes from the same deep well as your pain. It comes from the same capacity as love, meaning, connection. And so joy is a much more expansive feeling and allows us to have a sense that we can feel something different even if the cognitive construct of our life is not happy. Well, you know, when someone is going through a difficult time and a person says to them, you need to be happy or feel your joy. I mean, I remember when I was going through deep trauma and someone told me to find my joy, I I was like, are you kidding me? Joy in in what? How do I find joy in this? So is joy important in order for us to heal? I think it is, and and this is what I would say, is that when uh, I feel you, when I've been in deep pain, it feels like there's no way out, right? And the thing is that suffering does that. It narrows our lens. It makes everything feel unsolvable. And our emotions around that pain become very solid and fixed by uh, understandably, right? But the thing that joy can do is expand those feelings so that we can acknowledge the anger, the sadness, the grief, whatever we may be feeling, and allow a little more fluidity. You know, um, J.D. Salinger, I didn't know this when I wrote the book, I wish I did, but J.D. Salinger wrote that happiness is a solid and joy is a liquid. And I actually think that really 
captures a lot right there. It's just that joy can flow in and out of all of our emotions so that it's the way that we can be at a funeral and feel such deep, weighty heart loss, but then have a moment in the same time of laughing with our family about this person that we miss so very much. It's a way of reflecting the weight of our pain as a reflection of our love. I remember early in my career, I interviewed a woman who was a quadriplegic, and she explained to me that after she had her accident, she wanted to commit suicide. She didn't see a future for herself, and she didn't want to be alive. And someone had given her advice one day. They told her to be grateful for the small things in life. And and immediately she said, what do you mean, be grateful? I'm not grateful for anything. And the person said, I didn't tell you to feel grateful. I told you to be grateful. And so what this woman explained to me, what she did was she started to be grateful for the little things, the bird outside the window, her physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And she said the, the amazing thing that happened after just being grateful is that over time she started to feel grateful. So does it work the same way with joy when we're in pain? If we start to be joyful, will we eventually feel joyful? Well, I think you've really captured it. What I would say is that, yes, but the way to be joyful is through tools that I frame in my book at like gratitude, self-compassion, breath, movement, etc. And I offer them, though, in a different way, like this person did, in a, in a lens that can be accessible for someone in deep pain. Because I'm with your friend or this person that you met. Um, it is very hard. I talk in the book about uh, my own experience of having a fatal illness diagnosis from my child and how, you know, I just thought joy was never to be had again. Uh, And I didn't want to live this life. Who wants to be a mother in that kind of situation? And what I found, though, is that in these moments of accessing my power back, because all of being paraplegic, having a bad diagnosis, living in oppression or poverty, there's no way to justify the good in that. And at the same time, what they've done is strip our power, stripped our humanity, made us feel small and hopeless. And when we reclaim our power through these tools, like this person did by being grateful, we start to feel connection to ourselves and that allows us to connect back to the world and feel like we're a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while we're talking about the way we feel and in our mental health, the trauma that we experience also impacts us on a physical level. So would you just explain a little bit to our listeners what happens to us physically when we stay stuck in that trauma? Yes. So trauma, we're well aware now through decades of beautiful research and uh, dissertation on trauma that it lives in our body long after it happens. And the reason it does that is because at a moment of great loss or trauma, we actually have changes in our nervous system that are there to protect us. We're not broken. They're working very well. They help us either run away. They help us uh, get numb and withdraw from the trauma. They help us just deal with it in the moment. But what that does is actually make us hypervigilant in our nervous system and so that we're unable to feel safe or feel ease in our body through that trauma and long after. When we reaccess tools that bring us to joy, we actually are doing the sort of repair work we need where we tell our nervous system, you are safe, you are okay in this moment, even if the life as a whole does not feel fair, right, or just, in this moment, you are safe and okay. And slowly, we bring our nervous system back into balance. You just briefly mentioned a few of the tools that you write about. Would, would you share in a little bit more detail a couple of your favorites? Yeah, someone asked me what my favorite was, and I said, that's like asking me what, you know, my favorite <laughs> child. <laughs> but I have many. But uh For me, actually, my favorite go-to is movement. And uh, for me, it's dance. It can be any kind of movement for anyone, whatever is accessible. And if you're in a wheelchair or walking with a cane or not walking at all, it could be just shaking or spinning in your chair. And movement does something really amazing. The science actually shows that we express molecules from our muscles 
with any movements that can be anti-inflammatory, that can be repairing, and so much so that the scientists call them hope molecules. I mean, I find that really powerful and inspiring. And these hope molecules really allow us to expand into our body. I tell my patients all the time when they tell me I feel stuck, I say the mind cannot move if the body does not. And uh, for me, when I'm feeling stuck, when I'm feeling very anxious, very sad, I have to move my body. And so I describe different kinds of active meditations in the book, but I also just turn on my favorite music and literally dance. Um, Another one that I really love uh, is it, what's called emotion labeling. And I and I offer this because if your listeners are thinking, how can I even do this? This is so simple. I'm not saying these things are easy, but they're simple. Is that, you know, there is science to show that if we suppress and try to dismiss all our emotions, we actually make our nervous system more vigilant. I find that really powerful because what we think we should do is say, you know, I don't want to feel sad. I'm just going to try to feel happy. And what we show is that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to actually simply label your emotions as you feel them while you're going through the day. It's not the bigger work of therapy, which you can do in parallel, but it's a way to manage and label emotions as they come up so that you're acknowledging them but not necessarily getting stuck in them. And what that does is actually bring us out of our threat center in the middle of our brain and bring us into our center of clarity in our frontal cortex. So it's as simple as saying sadness, anger, whatever you see, taking a deep breath with it, and sitting with it more or moving on. I find that really powerful. I I describe how to do it in the book because it is something that's accessible all day, any day. You don't have to stop and go meditate or, you know, do a meditation under a tree. You can really be doing this through anything. One of the tools that I started to use in my life, and I'm so happy that I found it, and I would love your take on it. We hear a lot about the power of affirmations, but for me, I think they weren't working as well because I really wasn't believing what I was trying to tell myself. So I started to practice affirmations where you are opening up more to possibility. You're getting your brain involved in the thought process and in the Mm. problem solving. So instead of saying, I am whatever, I start to say, what if I am? What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that is a more effective tool? So. I actually first want to say if it's more effective for you, then yes, it's Mm -hmm. more effective. And I really mean that because everybody's roadmap to joy is different. I think that what is missing from the sort of zeitgeist around just, um, you know, affirmations in general is acting. um, I don't believe that it's right to tell people if you just say I am this that is how it will be, that you'll manifest it, as people say. I think what's more powerful is what you're doing, which is saying, this isn't working for me. How can it fit my revolution? How can I make this powerful for me? For some people, it may work to say, I am beautiful or I am strong. But for many of us, just saying that is not enough. We have to bring ourselves into, as you described it, the realm of possibility and belief. There is science. I I think what you did is really interesting because there is science to show that asking insightful questions is more powerful in the brain in terms of uh, neuroplasticity than saying statements. So I think that might be part of what you tapped into. Well, and I think for me, because I am such an in-my-head person, I have to reason things out that rather than Mm -hmm. saying I am beautiful, I say to myself, what if I was beautiful? It is true. And If you really pay attention um, to all of the tools that I talk about, you'll see that they really bring you back into your body and out of your mind. And I think you're tapping into that right now, which is that when we only stand our mind, it's not that the mind isn't powerful, but if we're only solving or working on things in our mind, what you're describing is really useful for people to understand. We can get in a back and forth, in a ruminating, in a sort of uh, perseverating mode where we're just focused on the logistics. When we step into our body, what happens is we actually use our nervous system to heal. We use our body to heal because what we talked about before about trauma in the body is what I say to patients 
every day is that trauma lives in the body, but that's also where it powerfully heals. And you're tapping into that with what you're saying. Now, would you talk to us a little bit about intergenerational pain? Yes. So Rachel Yehuda is a brilliant, um, she's in your neck of the woods, brilliant researcher who really did a lot of the epigenetic research. I talk about her in the book. Uh, She did it around Holocaust survivors and really looking at the children and grandchildren and showing that um, it wasn't just that these children and grandchildren grew up around stories or listening about the Holocaust, but that they're actually their DNA markers had changed from the trauma. And she really brought a whole new power to trauma living in the body. And what we found since her research over and over is that this is true and that these markers can be modified. It gives us hope. It shows us that people go through trauma. It affects their family tree, but their family can also modify it by these practices. And so I think about this a lot. Uh, I have parents, not just grandparents, but parents who went through the partition of Pakistan and India, uh, very similar to the kind of trauma and lives lost of the Holocaust. And I grew up with that, but I also don't know if that created more hypervigilance in my body, which I have felt my whole life, that kind of hypervigilance. And when I work on my nervous system, I think about how I'm healing the DNA of my family. And so there's a lot of power in this. People always ask me, can I make changes so that my children and grandchildren have it differently? And I think the answer so far is yes, it looks like we can. I mean, there's just powerful changes on these epigenetic markers. So I I want people to hear that the changes happen. It is not that you're making it up if you come from a family where trauma was experienced. But I also want people to hear the hope, which is that you have the power to also modify that. The first time I had learned about intergenerational trauma, I found it fascinating because two years before I was born, my parents lost my brother. He was 14. He passed away. And then I was born two years later. And it it does explain to me a lot of the things that I've experienced within myself. Um, And I do agree with you that there is hope because I am doing a lot of work on myself. Yeah. And it's, and I find it fascinating too, but I also think it's empowering, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's powerful to hear that you can feel that, yes, that explains some of this and I'm working on it. Right. And I feel like every time that's the key, really, here, I'm going to let everyone in on a secret, which is not a secret because I tell you in the book, but If you can acknowledge your pain, your past trauma, your present pain, if you can sit with that and actually work on it, joy is more accessible to you. And the fact that we try to suppress it and try to forget about it or try to make it all okay in this kind of toxic positivity kind of world we live in, that is actually harmful. And so it is this act of acknowledging working on it that can lead us to more bliss. You know, I tell people all the time that when my son was diagnosed with this horrible ALS-like disease, I thought joy would be inaccessible. At the time, I also just interchangeably confused it with happiness. So I thought it was all inaccessible. But what I know now is I was happier before that diagnosis, and I've never now, though, been as joyful as I am now. So I did not know true joy before that. Everything that you've been describing, the problem is that you were talking about suppressing our feelings. We don't want to feel that pain because to get to the other side, you have to go through the pain. You have to deal with it and, and, and heal from it. And it's not easy. So is there advice that you can offer as a mom who just described what you've experienced and also as a medical professional to help someone take that first step to do the deep, hard work? Yes. I get this question a lot. I get it more in the form of people coming up to me after a presentation and saying, I was so moved, but I don't think I can do that. You can imagine that's a very common uh, statement that I'm here. I first always tell anyone listening, this is just an invitation. It's an invitation to a different way of managing, living, being with your emotions. You come into it when you feel ready. 
But I also offer that it doesn't take the deepest, hardest step first to make this work. You can take the lightest first step. I think your story of the person who said, I couldn't feel grateful, but I could be grateful for a bird or a piece of a flower or whatever it is, that is a first light step. A first light step is offering yourself compassion. There's neuroscience, I go into depth in the book about this, but it really matters. A first step is saying, I feel really sad today, and I'm just going to say that. I'm going to own that. I'm not going to try to make it different. You know, so there are lots of first light steps, and the harder work can feel overwhelming, but the light steps can make that harder work feel less solid. And the third thing that I feel really strongly about is that, you know, people will say, I just can't do this. It sounds too hard. I would challenge that the way we're living by suppressing our emotions is even harder. We may not realize it every day because it involves distraction from the emotions, but it comes up in other ways. We're either irritable, unable to manage relationships, don't really feel like we can connect with people, or more often what I see in my exam room is real physical symptoms, the havoc and impact of that stress on the body. So this will catch up to you one way or the other. And the question is, how can I sit with what's happening instead of putting it away? The book is Joy is My Justice, Reclaim What is Yours. Doctor, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Yeah, well, they can go to my website, it's my first and last name, MD, ThanmeetSetiMD.com. And there's my book and how to buy it and there's some bonuses for you if you buy it, but you can also look up my book anywhere. It's available anywhere books are sold on all formats. And then um, I'm most active on social media on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well, but Instagram's where I would love to hear from listeners and uh, your takeaways and how you like the book. And doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what is the takeaway? <laughs> what would you like to leave our listeners with? The takeaway is that joy is accessible to all of us, regardless of what you're going through, your race, your gender expression, your financial status. Joy is a powerful birthright, and it is available to all. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I was so honored to be here. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Now that the public health emergency has ended, many people may lose their health insurance. Joining us today to talk about what you can do in order to keep health care coverage is Karina Checo, Director of Revenue Cycle for Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Welcome, Karina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Karina, let's start off by backing up a bit. 
During the health emergency, what happened that enabled people to obtain coverage that they may now lose? So under the federal guidelines during the COVID-19 public health emergency, the New Jersey State Medicaid um, established special rules, um, which enabled a lot of the Medicaid recipients to keep their health coverage during the um, public health emergency, even if they did not qualify any longer. So who will be most impacted now that this emergency has ended? Medicaid recipients would be most impacted. What is the unwinding process and how will it be rolled out? Sure. So the unwinding process is um, basically undoing those special rules. Now Medicaid is going to revert back to the normal guidelines and criteria for Medicaid recipients. So what they've done is as of April 1st, 2023, they started to send the redetermination packages to the patients, um, to the uh, Medicaid recipients. So now they have to basically reapply and resubmit their verification documents on an annual basis as it was before the public health emergency. So a lot of the patients that were previously um, over income, for example, or didn't respond um, is another example of how people are being affected negatively. They will have their coverages terminated through Medicaid. Is this going to be impacting everyone? Does everyone on Medicaid have to reapply or is it only a subset of that population? It is everyone on Medicaid. The county is sending redetermination packages as of April 1st, and each month they're sending out a specific amount. They haven't disclosed exactly which um, population, for example, um, is being requested first. Uh, they're, they're not, they haven't disclosed if it's going to be an alpha order or not. Uh, but they're just advising everyone to make sure that their address is updated um, so that when their turn comes up, that they do receive their redetermination package and that they respond in a timely manner. And when will all of this be completed? The Medicaid process, the unwinding process, the redetermination process is scheduled to be completed by March 31st, um, 2024. So next year. Hopefully, everyone that's on the program will be re-verified and will have a determination. Now, because there are going to be some people that are over income, like I said, and will no longer qualify for Medicaid normal criteria, um, they can uh, go to the marketplace and get coverage through the marketplace, and the marketplace will be accepting enrollments through July 31st, 2024. Is there anything else they need to know now or that they should be doing? Yes. So the one thing that I'll add is to make sure that their uh, mailing address has been updated. They can call um, 1-800-701-0710 and they can make sure that their address and their contact information is updated so that they don't miss their package in the mail or their determination letter. So Karina, we've been talking about New Jersey, but is this something that's happening on a federal level as well? Yes, ma'am, it is happening on a federal level. So while we're discussing New Jersey, Medicaid-insured people throughout the country really need to be paying attention to this as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of the criteria to qualify for Medicaid has to do with residency. So during the public health emergency, as an example, if you lived in New York and you had New York Medicaid, New York Medicaid could have been provide, um, covering providers in New Jersey because now you've moved to New Jersey and it's easier for you to see your providers in New Jersey. That will no longer happen. If you cannot prove that you have that New York residency, then you will not um, you will no longer be eligible for New York Medicaid. You have to apply for New Jersey Medicaid. So any of our New Jersey rep, uh, residents that are recipients of out-of-state Medicaid have to either proactively, which is what we're encouraging our, our staff to do and our patients, um, proactively uh, terminate your out-of-state Medicaid and apply for your in-state Medicaid, which would in our case, be um, New Jersey. And Karina, where can people go to get more information about this? So there's uh, the New Jersey Get Covered webpage. I think it's very uh, informative. So that's www.nj.gov backslash getcoverednj. And there's information there about um, the marketplace and other um, 
coverage. So submitting an application through getcoverednj.com. If you qualify for Medicaid, then that application will be sent to Medicaid. And if you qualified for marketplace um, policies, it will also um, send the application to the appropriate vendor, state vendor. Um, also, I mean, in here at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center, we have partnered with Bergen County Board of Social Services, and we have a caseworker on site uh, Monday through Thursday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and they can assist uh, folks with applying for Medicaid or getting health coverage. Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Gaslighting is a technique of manipulating others in order to gain control. Today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis, joins us to shed light on gaslighting and to offer strategies to help us cope and break free. Dr. Sarkis is a psychotherapist who is a senior contributor to Forbes, Psychology Today, and The Huffington Post. She is the best-selling author of multiple books, including Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People, and Break Free. Welcome, Dr. Sarkis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jen. Doctor, a lot of us are familiar with the term gaslighting, but I don't think we really understand what it means. So what is gaslighting and how does it work? Well, gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse, which is a form of domestic violence. And the purpose of gaslighting is that the perpetrator tries to make the victim feel like they're going crazy and that they cannot trust their version of reality. And what that means is, is that the victim keeps relying on the perpetrator for their version of reality because they're told that they can't trust themselves. And by that way, the perpetrator isolates the person and also uh, increases the control over their life. How does something like this even get started in a relationship? It's a slow buildup. So when you first have a relationship with someone that has this type of, of abusive behavior, initially there's a thing called love bombing, which is where you meet someone and they tell you the best thing ever and they pressure you to move in right away, and it seems too good to be true, because it is. And that's called idealizing. Then you get into devaluing, which is once the the person knows that you're committed, and they will ask things like, you know, are you 100% in? Uh, Is this, you know, what you want? Are we committed? Then they start bringing up things like like your appearance. Uh, They tell you that they think that your friends and family aren't good influences, they continually start picking at you. And then eventually you get to the devaluing process, which is where they, you find that they have already had relationships on the side or they just leave all of a sudden. And if you leave, they will try to hoover you or suck you back into the relationship so they can get what's called narcissistic supply, uh, which is you know, they need constant attention and they don't want to let you out of their craft. So are most gaslighters narcissists? They can be. Uh, you can also have gaslighters that learn this as a form of communication. They learn that, that from their parents in a dysfunctional family that this is how relationships go. So those people are more likely to seek help because they realize that, wait a second, I'm doing something in my relationships that's not working well. However, if you have narcissistic personality disorder, you tend to view your behavior as fine and everyone else has a problem. So you're less likely to seek help for it. What type of person is most likely to fall victim to a gaslighter? Is it someone who's a people pleaser? It could be, but I think we're all prone to it. I think we all have levels where we are prone to someone manipulating us. I think when we're vulnerable, so if you have medical conditions and uh, or you've gone through a period of grief, I think you're particularly vulnerable. I think people in helping professions, such as teachers, attorneys, medical professionals, therapists are more likely to become susceptible to this person because we tend to believe that people can change and we're more likely to believe in the good nature of people. So you had mentioned that, you know, one type of a gaslighter is someone who just learned this dysfunctional behavior from his or her family relationships. But why else would someone do this? What's the end goal? What people do it for is, is not only because, again, like, like you mentioned, they learned it from their family of origin, but they also sometimes get a dopamine boost from controlling and manipulating people. So a dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's a feel-good chemical. So we get that usually from petting our dog or cat, or playing with our kids, or doing a good job at work. But people that are, are sociopaths or that have 
this need for control, get dopamine through controlling people, manipulating them. So they get a reward, a, a brain reward from doing this, which is kind of opposite of, of what majority of people do. We don't like having people feel bad. Uh, so it's something that the person will do purposely sometimes uh, because they need that sense of power and control. And, and like you said, you know, other people are in it for their family members. But the bottom line is that, that either way, the behavior is abusive, regardless of how they came to that behavior. What's so interesting about this, I, I, you know, I think the only thing that I had really known about gaslighting was an old movie that was a thriller. It was, you know, a, a mm-hmm. suspense thriller type movie, but you never realize that this can be taking place in a daily interpersonal relationship. Right. And the movie from the 1940s, the husband was turning down the gaslights in the home and making them dimmer. And the wife was saying, you know what, I think there's something wrong with the gaslights. I think they're being turned down. He goes, nope. Mm-mm. I think you need to get checked out. I think you're crazy. You've got problems. And that's exactly what, what this type of person does. They'll tell you that what you're seeing and hearing isn't what happens. They will hide valuable items on you, sentimental items like your wedding ring, jewelry, and tell you that you're irresponsible and you lost it. They'll tell you that you're irresponsible with money, even though there's been no signs of that. And they'll tell you that you need to sign all your assets and accounts over to them. Uh, so they will continually make you feel like you're going crazy. They'll tell you other people think that you're crazy. So you're less likely to go out and seek help because you're afraid that people are going to think that, that you're the issue. And you're told you're the issue. You're told that if you only did X, Y, and Z, that they wouldn't do this behavior. But this is a pattern they've had over relationships. This is not the first relationship they've had where they've, they've usually engaged in this abusive behavior. Can gaslighting be done on a bigger scale? So, for example, we hear so much today about you know, social media or media control politicians. Could Mm -hmm. this be something that they can be doing to control all of us in our daily lives? Oh, absolutely. You saw in 2016 that it's been proven that there was Russian infiltration into Facebook uh, and the political campaigns. So we see that this is a global scale. You have dictators telling people that, that what they're seeing and what they're hearing is incorrect or they control the media. We certainly see it on socially a larger scale. If this can happen to us on a daily basis in our personal relationships, but it can also happen on a grander scale, how do we start to recognize that this is even occurring? Education is key. So we need to know on a global scale what do dictators do. They usually create an us and a them. They usually create some form of enemy that that is made up. They will uh, have uh, state-owned media. They will have uh, they will have people that will enforce these archaic guidelines for people. Um, They will use threats and and force in order to get their way. In relationships, you have red flags. If something feels wrong, it probably is. One of the biggest signs on a first date with someone is how do they treat the wait staff? How do they treat people that they feel are are, uh, lesser than them? Do they start yelling at someone when they don't get their food done the right way? So that's a real tip-off. Look at how they treat other people. So we really need to know the red flags. Someone pushing too hard for commitment to begin the relationship, that's a red flag as well. And again, trust your intuition. I think sometimes that we're more, you talk about people pleasing, I think we're less likely to walk away from someone uh, like on a date if we feel like they're being inappropriate because we don't want to look rude. Well, we need to start looking at what's in our own best interest. And in your best interest is to get away from this person as soon as possible because the more time you spend with this person, the more likely it is that you'll get sucked into their, their gaslighting scheme. And the problem is when your intuition is telling you or your critical thought is telling you that something's not right, you're faced with someone daily who's making you feel like you're crazy for having these thoughts. Right. So it it becomes kind of a a paradoxical thing is that the more that you feel like you're not crazy, the more you're told you're crazy. So it's very difficult to, to get around that feeling of, wait a second, there's something really wrong and I need to do something about it. When one says, you know what, nobody's going to believe you, you have nowhere to go. At that stage where you realize that something's being done, that these people have usually isolated you from friends and family, so you may feel like you have nowhere to go. And also, if they've, if they've practiced economic abuse, which is, again, you know, having a turnover in your account, you may not have the resources available to leave. So, and we also, as people, have an issue with stop loss, which means that we've already invested time into this relationship. So we're hesitant to leave because of that time investment. So we're more likely to stay than leave because we've already given so much time. And people will blame themselves. They'll look up, they'll Google, what's wrong with me? A lot of people come into my therapy office saying, you know, why, what am I doing wrong that this person, you know, well, this relationship isn't working? And it turns out they're not doing anything wrong at all. The other person is making a concerted effort to gain control and power over them. 
And so there would be, and I guess this is a very important distinction, that there are different degrees of gaslighting. There's someone who's just doing it on a smaller scale, all the way to that extremely manipulative person who just wants total control of you. Right. And the end goal is always control and isolation, yes, but it can be to different degrees. The bottom line is if you feel like you're in a relationship like this, something feels wrong, consider leaving. One of the best things you can do is go no contact, which means blocking phone numbers, blocking emails, blocking their social media accounts. But if you have kids with someone, you can't always go low contact, no contact. So I, I recommend going low contact, which means having a pretty strict parenting plan that says exactly when the kids should be exchanged. Contact the family law attorneys, some do pro bono work, uh, which means that they don't charge you for their services. So uh, consult a uh, family law attorney to see what your rights are, what your children's rights are when you leave. And I would think that when you do try to get away from someone who exhibits this type of behavior, they're going to tell you and everyone in your life that this was all your fault. They have no blame in any of this. Right. And they also will send people to talk to you. So let's say you go no contact with someone. They'll send what are called flying monkeys, and their name's flying monkeys because flying monkeys sent messages for the Wicked Witch and Wizard of Oz. And they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, so-and-so really misses you. They really wish you were in their life again, and, and they're so sad, and, and I wish that you would help them and, and talk with them again. You have to make it very clear with people that you are not going to talk about this person, that you are not going to entertain any talk of any messages that are being sent to you because they will try doing that. They don't like losing their narcissistic supply. They don't like what they view as being abandoned. Um, so they will do whatever it takes to get you back. So you have to set really firm boundaries with the people in your life that you're not going to talk about this person or, or listen to any messages sent from others. Okay, so you've mentioned a few times the importance of getting away from this type of relationship. If someone is listening to us right now and that person is saying, oh my gosh, this is my life, what can he or she do to get started in this process? First, be aware that when you plan to leave and when you're leaving can be the most lethal times in an abusive relationship. So you have to be very careful and, and look at safety. Many domestic violence shelters do have a safety advocate on staff, and they can talk to you about the safest way to leave. Uh, some people have had to leave in the middle of the night with, with nothing with them just to get out of the situation. Um, so also make sure, again, that if you have kids with this person, that uh, your kids are safe, that your pets are safe, because they will also use pets as a way to get revenge on you or they will use them as a way to have contact with you. So make sure you take your pets with you. Uh, domestic violence shelters, some take pets, some don't, but there are several veterinarians that will take uh, pets for boarding at no charge until someone can find uh, housing for themselves and find a, a, a safe place to stay. So, uh, so the, the most important thing is to get out, and there are various ways you can do that, but most importantly, consider your safety. And also be careful if there are any firearms uh, in the home, too. And also, uh, there are different, I would consult with an attorney and talk with them about how you can protect yourself, you know, when you leave. And you mentioned a few warning signs so that we don't even get into this situation. Are there any other warning signs that we should be paying attention to? Someone that talks disparagingly about their ex or their family in the very beginning when you meet them, they use uh, negative language, they use slurs to talk about someone, uh, they uh, focus a lot on their accomplishments but don't ask you anything about you. Uh, when they ask you how you're doing, it doesn't seem like there's any feeling behind it. It's just, it's called cognitive empathy. They're saying, you know, how are you, you know, what's going on, as because they know that that's the way that you socialize with people, but they don't have any feeling behind it. They're doing it as a way to collect information. They'll also ask you very intimate questions in the very beginning of relationships. So what are your darkest fears? What's your biggest regret? And they're not doing that to build emotional intimacy. They're doing it to collect ammunition. So if you tell them about your relationship with your sister and how you wish it was better and the two of you don't talk very much... If you get in an argument, the first thing they might say is, oh, well, no wonder your sister doesn't talk to you anymore. I totally understand. She thinks you're crazy, too. So they will also do something called trauma dumping, which is when they first meet you, they'll tell you all the terrible things that have happened to them. And, and everybody has trauma to some extent, but this is using trauma as a way to lure you in. And the reason why they're telling you all this very personal information right up front is they're trying to get you to reciprocate and talk about your trauma. And then they will use that as ammunition. So be very careful of someone that seems like they're acting too familiar right when they meet you. It sounds like these people can do so much damage to our emotional and mental health. So if we are ever a victim of a gaslighter, how do we move forward from that? It's very important first to go as low contact as possible or no contact. 
And also contact a mental health professional because leaving this type of relationship is not like a breakup where, you know, you have grief and, and you process and it takes a while to heal. When you leave this type of relationship, you can become suicidal. You can have extreme feelings of anxiety and depression. So it's very important you talk to someone because this type of relationship is very difficult to leave. There's also a trauma bonding that happens. And what I mean by that is that when you have an abusive situation or relationship, your body produces adrenaline because that's a fight, flight, or freeze chemical, right? So we get a lot of adrenaline coming in that gets, that gets our system all amped up. And then there's a period of reconciliation. The person may not say they're sorry because gaslighters usually don't apologize. But then there's a period where they're nice to you. And so then you get dopamine flooding in your system. So your brain gets kind of addicted to that pattern of adrenaline and dopamine. So it's very important to, to notice that this is a reaction your brain is having, that, that excitement in a relationship isn't always healthy. So sometimes those butterflies are red flags. So also, it's, it's important to pay attention to that this, again, is not a standard breakup, that, that it would be really helpful for you to talk to someone through all the different feelings you have. And it's actually quite normal to feel suicidal. If you are feeling suicidal, it's very important to talk to a mental health professional or contact a crisis services. In addition to your website, stephaniesarkis.com, can you offer any other resources that might be of help? Sure. I have a book coming out in July called Healing from Toxic Relationships, where it talks about 10 steps to getting free of this relationship and rebuilding your life because this type of person will dismantle even what you like and dislike. They will uh, turn family and friends against you. So it's really important that you have a guide to help you reestablish those relationships and, and gain your life back. And I definitely want to have you come back on when that book comes out. So we will make that happen. And once again, the, the topic that we've been talking about today, Dr. Sarkis's book is Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. And once again, her website is stephaniesarkis.com. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? It's really important to know that you can leave this type of relationship and have uh, relationships that are healthy and productive and you can go on to have a happy life. Um, this by no means in this type of relationship doesn't mean that you're going to be in this type of situation forever. You can rebuild and you can have a life that is even better than the one you had before. Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Jones. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How do you define health? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for stress reduction through relaxation and meditation with sound and music. Many people think that if you are not sick, you are healthy. That's a fair point. After all, if your body is not fighting a disease, it's because there is no disease to fight. But what about the factors that increase your risk of getting sick? Are you aware that most illnesses are related to stress disorders? That's right, stress makes you sick. If you are living with a lot of stress and you are not doing anything to mitigate it, you could be on your way to feeling quite ill. Stress makes you sick. 75% or more of all illnesses can be traced to stress. Acute stress produces physiological responses that are meant to keep you alive when you are under threat. However, your body engages those same physiological processes when you are chronically stressed. But instead of keeping you alive, it decreases your immune function. You are not meant to live with chronic stress. I'm Allison Ayati, and I want to help you learn how to reduce your stress for a healthy, happy life. To learn more, go to livingthesoundlife.com. The Sound Life is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. food freedom. Some people think it's being free to eat whatever you want, and that's true as far as it goes. But let's look at the flip side. Food freedom is also being free not to eat certain foods. Let me explain. Most of my life, I was not free to pass by an offering of cookies, donuts, or potato chips without partaking. And once I had one, I'd always have another. While I felt free to eat those things, I was absolutely not free to not eat them. Food freedom is about being truly intentional with your food choices. 
I'm certified health and wellness coach, Julie Sloan, and I help people find food freedom and transform their relationship with food and health through a 90-day challenge where I focus on mindset, food psychology, and nutrition to help you understand what's really going on with your cravings and emotional eating. Do you want food freedom? Visit me at wellandgrounded.com. That's wellandgrounded.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Hi, it's Linda from Linda Mitchell Coaching and Healing. Imagine yourself remaining calm, clear-headed, stress-free, and positive, even in the midst of life's greatest challenges. Good news, there's a proven process to help you do just that. And I'm living proof. Go to lindamitchellhealing.com to take a free assessment and learn the top ways you sabotage your success and happiness and how to finally break away from those old patterns. Let's talk after your free assessment at lindamitchellhealing.com. for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.